0: that was a blessing. And how many that's the first time you ever sang that song until that day? That's so great. I love that. You know, uh, it occurs to me, especially this morning as we were singing first service, that um, if we spent a lot more time thinking about that, there'd be a lot less trouble, uh, real trouble in today's world, wouldn't there? When we're thinking about the trials and troubles and how that'll make us smile, how the Lord brought us through, and I just um, am reminded that those old hymns have a lot to give to us still, and I'm glad that we do them. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's a blessing to be back with you today. It's a joy to be in the Word of God, and we're going to turn there our study entitled Instructions for the Church, Teaching, Leading, and Equipping, particularly here, Pursuing Godliness and Success from God's Perspective. So we're going to be Picking up in verse 12, reading through verse 16, so if you can look there with me, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Whatever you read, just uh, go ahead and read. I'll give you some verse cues. We'll stay together, and your understanding will be enriched. Verse 12 says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe, verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance. With the laying on of hands by the presbytery, verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, we've been studying our way through this fourth chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, a young pastor. And I'll just say, as we get to this section of Scripture, uh, by way of transparency, as, as I was as invited last weekend to participate in an ordination uh, examination and an installation service of a young man who's not so young now as the senior pastor, a man that I had the privilege of bringing on the pastoral staff as a student minister almost 20 years ago. I was reminded, and as I was blessed to participate in all of that and to get a chance again to teach the church, that these passages are very dear and important to my own life. As, As these were some of the passages that I taught in the church in New York State just this past weekend, and the passages really speak to my heart because they speak to all those who serve Jesus by way of an overseer's position, particularly in preaching and teaching, because That is Paul's primary focus and his instruction to Timothy about his ministry. And and as we've seen, it has wonderful secondary effects to every believer because as I reminded the church in New York where we spent eight years serving and as I have reminded you a number of times, that uh, whatever it is that the elder is to be, he is to be that in order that he might be a model of what every believer is to be. And so no one is really off the hook in this passage it's just that we have the greater responsibility to live out these principles in order to set the pattern for everyone else. And and what we will see today and have seen in the passages before as I've held them up, realize that I've held them up before myself for 30 plus years, these passages right here that we're getting ready to get into. And and uh, our, our standard passage this, this uh, morning really has been, the standard i've desired to live up to in my preaching and teaching so i hope it'll be a rich for you as it is for me and now just a quick review as this is our habit if you've not been with us I realize as we've gone through chapter 4 in verses 1 through 5 paul has helped timothy think biblically about false teachers and about false teaching and where all of that finds its source and so he spent a lot of time making sure timothy understands this those things that all false teaching no matter how much it's held in sincerity by someone as it departs from what the word of god actually says that that is doctrines of demons. A demon has come up with that, and a a man in a pulpit has then uh, repeated it. And then in verses six through eight, we took a lot of time with that. If you missed any of that, you can go back and catch it. The apostle Paul laid down some very simple principles concerning the true pursuit of godliness uh, that will mark the life of the faithful servant of Jesus, the working out in spiritual things, and uh, being faithful in those kinds of things. And so and indicates really success from God's perspective. And then we got to verses 9 and 10, and Paul encouraged Timothy with a commonly accepted axiom, one that's just as motivating now as it was then. It was very uh, common around the church during that time. It, It is, verse 10 says, it is for this that we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And we saw that extensively as we looked at it, that we labor and we strive, and all the time we're waiting for the moment when the Lord will make everything we have done clear and how it all washed out in light of eternity. Much like the song we just sang, we'll get a glimpse of that city and you realize that all this was really fleeting and that what you did that was in obedience to Christ is all that you're gonna carry with you, that's what's gonna be examined. And we labor and we strive and we're waiting for that. and, And so we're not looking for human praise as we do what we're doing. We're waiting and working and striving and laboring for God's eternal reward because it's sure, verse 10 says. And, and in all that we believe and in all that we do, we believe it and we do it with a sure hope, knowing in Hebrews 6 says he won't forget any of your work. And so that labor becomes very, very satisfying as you do it, regardless of the response, regardless of how much time you put in, you realize the Lord hasn't forgotten any of that. So very important principles as we think about ministry, think about long-term ministry. And now that Paul's been carried along to remind Timothy, really, of the motivation needed to survive the ministry of the gospel, he continues to prompt him to godliness and to success from God's perspective. And so he says, and we saw this last time, look at verse 11, prescribe and teach these things, let no one, verse 12, look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So Paul's speaking to Timothy the uncalled as we saw last time, the unsought after pastor here laboring to bring godliness and Christ's order back to a church that's struggling. Here he is plopped down in the middle of it. They didn't ask him to come. Nobody wanted him to come. Nobody requested him to come, no doubt. They resent his presence there as he's he's presenting and representing Paul so Paul's urging Timothy uh, on and encouraging him in the middle of this discouraging time and these insecure times. And, and Paul gives this advice from a lifetime of serving the church and, and guiding her and enduring the disrespect and the discouragement and all that's part of the disillusionment that can certainly be part of what is the ministry now and what was the ministry then for Paul. And Paul says, if you remember as, as Acts uh, records for us, Luke records us Acts 18.9, Paul is reminded, and the Lord said to Paul in the night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. Paul comes into the city of Corinth. He begins his witnessing in the synagogue. It doesn't take very long until people want to kill him. So he moves out of the synagogue, and he moves into the house next door, and he leads the leader of the synagogue to faith. And that was the beginning of the church, right in hostility, right in threats. And Paul is worried about all this. So Paul is encouraging Timothy, but he's been there. We get the sense that there was a good bit of concern, and in the night watches, some lost sleep and worry about the course that the ministry is going to take. And then after he leaves Corinth, we saw in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, he says, for even when we came to Macedonia, uh, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. And so again, this is still the nature of ministry. Paul moves, but it's the same issue. Uh, There are some breaks from time to time, but this is what it looks like, hard work, little rest and you worry. And then very clearly in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28, Paul is, is recounting some of his ministry experiences and the difficulties he's had on the road and traveling through the ministry uh, and through the missionary journeys. He says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches who is weak without my being weak, who's led into sin without my intense concern. So conflicts with people that you're responsible for leading who don't want to be led by you. A concern for those who are weak in the faith and what they're going to do when times get difficult because they're not that strong now. And concern for those who are walking in sinfulness and how you're going to have to confront that and what you're going to have to do about all that. So fears within about all of that stuff. And Paul had been there himself and anyone who faithfully ministers has been there. If you're just starting in the ministry, you will be there and you'll be there again and again And and, uh, so Paul addresses Timothy in in a very personal, and we can see very intimate terms in these final thoughts in chapter 4. And and we saw some important principles on godliness and success from God's perspective. And then Paul says, of the instruction he's been given to Timothy, prescribe, he says, and teach these things. We saw that prescribe as a compound verb, para-angelo, present active imperative. It just, it's translated 31 times command and so, and then he says, and teach, and that's uh, the verb didasco. That is also present active imperative. Both of those are commands to Timothy to command and teach. In other words, some things that I've given you, these things you have to teach, that's not optional, and you have the authority to command them. And, and so, in context, here it's opposing the false teachers and the asceticism they were teaching and other things taught by demons, and then instruct the church as to the proper diet and the discipline that really leads to godliness uh, so necessary then. And then that was principle number one in success from God's perspective. Take the clear instruction of the Word of God, command it, he says, and teach it. And and this is just a small, minute of angle here. So, in other words, as you get down range, it's going to get a lot wider. And we're going to see it in verse 13. Right here, it's just make sure you command and teach these things that I've taught you about uh, unfaithful teachers and the things that they're teaching. But as you go on down, it's going to open way up as we're going to see here shortly. No matter how you feel then about yourself, no matter wh- whether you feel intimidated, uh, no matter who opposes you, as we saw, uh, whether you feel like it or not, Paul speaks from experience, do this faithfully. this is success from God's perspective. And you're to do it, he says, with authority. He's given this timid Timothy a command to have some authority and take that authority and discharge it. Now, So he encourages Timothy this way, put his doubts away about himself and and his timidity and, and approach these hard topics and teach them faithfully. And then he addresses Timothy's character and the character really of every man who aspires to the office of overseer. And we saw in chapter three, Uh, character is the issue in ministry. In fact, chapter three, other than one of the trademarks of those who oversee the church, every other thing had to do with testimony and character. It's always the thing. It's always the basis. Character is the issue in ministry. It's what you are before God. And remember, just one standard, one holy standard. As we see uh, chapter three, one holy standard for those who lead the church, the same holy standard that they're exhibiting up on uh, in the pulpit, you have to follow uh, one holy standard here of character holding and proclaiming the truth is always out of a godly life that's the essential thing. You're never going to have an effective ministry among your peers. You're not going to be effective for the kingdom unless you have character that backs up what you're saying, okay? You can say whatever you want, but godliness is more easily feigned in words than it is in actions, and it's always that way. And so Paul's going to come back and say, listen, the foundation of which you're going to discharge this authority, and this teaching is going to be character. So look at verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, he says, but rather... In speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. And we have seen, and we will see, that throughout the pastoral epistles, the the intent of Paul really is to lay the responsibility on the servant of God at the level of spiritual character. And and that's where everything really takes place. All ministry activity is going to flow out of that. You still have things you have to do, things you have to discharge, as Paul has given Timothy many commands, but it's going to flow out of a life, a foundation of good character. So Paul says, show yourself an example of those who believe. And we saw those two words, an example, is just the single noun, topos. And that refers to, as we saw, a stamp or a blow caused by striking something. Uh, so uh, Timothy, show that you've been formed, you've been stamped in the image of God, or m- the mark of godliness, rather, is on you. And when we look at that, it's an interesting turn of phrase. He says, show yourself an example of those who believe. And he says in verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. And Paul is, in essence, saying, you know, juvenile behavior can cause people to conclude you're not mature enough to lead, or you're not mature enough to listen to, or you're not a good enough example of what Christianity looks like, or you're not worthy of following, particularly for Timothy as he's leading the church. So Paul says, prove them all wrong about associating immaturity with you, because just because you're inexperienced doesn't mean you're immature, Okay, you catch that? Just because you're inexperienced in the ministry doesn't automatically mean that you're immature. Just because you're inexperienced in doing ministry, beloved, and and witnessing to people doesn't mean that you're immature and you shouldn't be. And so this is all part of this laying this foundation. And again, maturity, like all the rest of these things, is not self-defined. We don't get to define what it looks like to be a good servant of Jesus. We don't get to define what it looks like to be mature. So, Paul lays out five things that define for us what it looks like to be marked or stamped with godliness. And so, he says in these things, he says, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And the first one mentioned here, and we will just briefly uh, just look at these because we looked at these extensively last time. The first one, Paul says, is speech. Be an example stamped by godliness in speech. And that just means show people what a self-controlled tongue looks like. And we looked at James chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2 where we saw, let not many of you become teachers, as it refers to teachers in the church, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all, he says, stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This is teaching in the church, and there are no perfect men. And all the women said, Amen. But the goal is to be an example in speech. And, they, and, and then we saw at the second one then is conduct. So first thing is be an example, stand by godliness in speech. What you say should reflect well on what you uh, are. And this, this is the conduct. It's just the day-to-day manner of life, how you do your life regularly. It's the exact idea we had from 1 Peter 2, verse 12. You know, keep your, here's our word, behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You're going to be slandered about. You're going to be gossiped. You're going to be whispered about. It goes with the territory. But you, he says to Timothy, keep your conduct excellent. Peter says to the church, keep your conduct excellent. Whatever it is that we do as those who are the redeemed, how we do go about our day, that should be an example stamped by godliness, and real life that way is success from God's perspective. Regardless of how people observe you, regardless of what they may say about you, you don't want to give them a reason to say true bad things about you. You want to live your life in such a way that whatever they say is a lie, and someday they'll know. And then number three was love, and that's the Greek word we're so familiar with. It's a noun, agape. It's the It shows up in verb form, though, and the mandate here, and we looked at this quite extensively, but the mandate is to let your life be marked by self-sacrificing service in the lives of others, because that's what that love is. It's self-serving, self-serving someone else but more than yourself, self-sacrificing. And First John 3:18, just my quiet time just yesterday, let us not love in word and tongue, but in deed and truth. That's the idea. Not just saying that you love someone, but actually doing acts of love. That's the kind of example we're supposed to be. That's really the essence of ministry. It's the essence of the church. Uh, The ministry that is stamped as the example is to love God's people to the point where you just give away all your energy and all your time for the purpose of communicating the things that the Lord wants them to know. And then number four, faith. We saw faith last time, and we saw it's probably intended to communicate a faithfulness or a trustworthiness or a dependability, and the idea is to be consistent. Timothy, be faithful, be trustworthy, be believable, show up. Uh, that's precisely the idea, I think, from 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. If you're going to discharge the Word of God, do it consistently. Be faithful. Hang in there for the long term, unswervingly. That's the idea. Serve Christ through all the years of your life. That's the faithfulness Paul is calling Timothy to. Uh, that's success from God's perspective. And then the last one was Purity. And, and we saw that now in Hagnia, that's the stamp that excludes all impurity. It's very consistent all through the Word of God, particularly here in the pastoral epistles where he told Timothy, avoid all worldliness and foolishness and untruthfulness. Exclude from your life things that are not going to be edifying to the Lord. And listen, you know, if you think about First Thessalonians 4, Paul says each man should know how to possess his own vessel. And what's the rest of it? Sanctification and honor. What's that mean? That implies that perhaps that's not what's going on but you already know what it means to possess your own body and sanctification and honor. So that means you're going to have to what? Be wise about what you, what you include and exclude from your life. You got to know where your weak points are. You got to know where you're going to, you're going to slip up, and that's what you want to exclude. That's precisely what we're talking about here. Exclude those kinds of things that are going to cause you trouble, where people will see those things in your life, and that will compromise your ability to teach. Now, in this last section of chapter 4, we've, we've looked at success from God's perspective from the angle of godly character. And, and now, as we said last time, we're going to look at success as God sees it from a ministry grounded in the Word of God. So look at verse 13. And, and uh, as I told you, some of these are some of my most favorite passages in all the Word of God. And we're going to uh, look at a few places to help us understand the sense of this really simple sentence. And these also will be passages that are very dear to me, so I'm, I'm encouraged and, and uh, looking forward to sharing them with you. But look at verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Now, that simple sentence is a significant text in defining the major work of the pastor and the worship of the church. And here is where we get downrange of that first really small, minute of angle command to, uh, from Paul to Timothy to prescribe and teach these things as it relates to the context of the trouble in Ephesus. And now we're on downrange, and now we've got a very wide field, and here's where we're going to take that in. And so this is principle number three. In success from God's perspective, the faithful minister is to have a thoroughly biblical ministry. This is the habit. And I think um, this is an important thing to look at and really define. Again, having a biblically-based ministry is not self-defined. Again, the Scripture's going to make it very clear what it looks like when you teach the Word of God. Because most pastors will say, well, I teach the Word of God, and yet they just give it a glancing blow, or they really just talk about what they want to talk about, or they give you five of their own points on how to have a good marriage, or whatever. And, that, and that, it seems all good and fine, and that they're, you know, being very, very biblical. But that's we're going to see that's not what we're talking about here, and how it'll line up really well with the things we've looked at before. But let's break this down a little bit, and, and we'll be better for it because, obviously, Paul spends a large amount of time talking about the Word, and it's the primary part of the ministry of the church. So let's start at the beginning. He says, until I come, and, and this little phrase really indicates Paul's intent to return to Ephesus and meet Timothy there in the near future. Now, we've noted that he did not get to come back, and so his 1 first, first Timothy 3.15 says, uh, until I return, you know, conduct yourself in this way. If I'm, de- if I'm delayed, make sure you do this. But here, uh, you know, First Timothy 3, 14, it says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. So again, the same kind of idea. But if I'm delayed, I write so you'll know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. Exactly how the church is supposed to work. We have the same idea here. He says, until I come, so until you receive any further orders, this is what I want you to do. I want you to give your attention to some very important things. So the question is, what are they? Well, let's look at the first word. First says, give attention to. Prosecho, the Greek verb. Again, present, active, imperative. So this is a command, again, to, to Timothy from Paul. And it's a continuing command, like we've already seen multiple times in this section. Command the church. Command and teach. Those, are, those were uh, both continuing commands. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. A continuing command. Be an example of godliness. A continuing command to Timothy. And now here, give attention to which just means this is a continuing command, and the sense of it is, I command you to continually be giving your attention to this. It really indicates this is to become your way of life. It isn't just, and mark this, it isn't just until I come, read, exhort, and teach. It is until I come, give your whole attention to the reading, the exhortation, and the teaching. You See the difference? So, in other words, it isn't just the act itself but the verb embodies all that's behind it, like command to teach with the character in place. See, everything's commanded, but it has some some uh, infrastructure that's already in place there. It assumes all of the commitment and all the necessary preparation that's going to be connected to uh, give attention. Now, uh, what is the one who serves as the overseer to be continually given his attention to? Here's what it says. Here's the first one: the public reading of Scripture. Now, what was the public reading? Well, first of all, in in the original, it only says, the reading, that's all that's there. And and the definite article is there, so we know the reading is indicating something well-known and long-standing. So he's referring to something they're they're gonna understand. We don't understand it very much uh, today. It's there uh, along, the the, uh, definite article is there, is the exhortation, and the teaching both have definite articles. So again, we're gonna have the same issue. We're gonna have to figure out exactly what is he referring to because it's not self-defined. More modern translations like the NASB 95 and NIV and ESV add public teaching, public reading of scripture. And so they put public in there to try to help clarify it. They still don't get it exactly right, but I understand what they're gonna do. Some other translations, the King James Version and the CEV, they get it completely wrong. And so you can come away not understanding at all what they're saying. So it's not just reading, although that's important. It's referring to a common practice called the reading, and the reading or the public reading of Scripture was not new. It was already part of the Christian worship that had adopted been adopted from the Jewish synagogue. And what I'd like you to do, if you would, I'm going to have you turn about three different places. I don't often do this, but I think you'll find this very, very satisfying and encouraging. And and and. Uh, It will help you learn. But look at Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you're unsure where that is, go to Psalms, turn back three books, you'll be there. It's probably in the middle of your Bible. If you're digital, you can find it in a second. But Nehemiah chapter 8, it's one of my favorite passages in all the Scripture. I think as we read this, as we lay the foundation of what the reading means, that uh, it'll really help you understand why we do what we do. And why we do it like we do it. And so I think comparing Scripture with Scripture always is the way to teach the Bible because the Bible is consistent with itself. And if you've cut a spot out in one place and you put it in somewhere else, it should fit perfectly. Uh, That's what it means to uh, rightly divide the word. So go to Nehemiah 8. We're going to pick in verse 2. We're going to read through verse 8. Now, the context of this, and you can read back uh, on your own time, but this is when the exiles have first come back from captivity in Babylon to the land of Israel. So this is a very significant time. And and Ezra the priest, it says in verse 2, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. On the first day of the seventh month, verse 3, he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law, verse 4. Ezra, the scribe, stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And then last part of that verse, the Lord records for us many of the leaders that were standing with him in agreement. And there's verse 5, pick up there if you would. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Verse 6, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I want to pause right there, and I, I don't think we can just read over that and say, just kind of shake our heads and say, great. Uh, this isn't some detached, going through the motions, just part of service kind of thing. Do you get that? People were connected to this, weren't they? This wasn't just kind of daydreaming out there, it's just kind of coming in and out of kind of paying attention, not really paying attention. When he opens the word and he begins to read and he, he blesses the Lord, the great God, the people say, amen, and they lift up their hands and then they bow down low and they worship the Lord. And so this is, this is worship and everyone's attuned to it. I think you can catch that. And then verse seven says, also Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Acab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maseiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, The Levites, now, they are there, it says, explained the law to the people. And that is the word for uh, discerning or understanding. So they're there because they understand the law, and they're there amongst the people, and there's a large crowd, and they're making sure that in the groups of people who perhaps are far off or close, and they're looking with some confusion on what Ezra is reading, they're there to help fill in the gaps. So that's a pretty cool thing, and we're going to see what that explaining looks like here in just a minute In this, in this reading. This is the reading that's going on here. And verse 8, it says, they explained a lot of the people while the people remained in their place. So they didn't have to kind of search around and say, What is it? What does it exactly mean here? There's somebody there to help. Verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, and then look at this very important clue. This is what explained means. Translating. That's the Hebrew verb, parash, to break apart, to get down to the basic parts. So he's going to read the passage, he's going to break it down to its basic parts. It's just not kind of bowling over everybody drinking from a fire hose. And then um, to give the sense, and I love that. To give the sense of the passage, that's that's the, uh, the Hebrew noun sekel, which just is the word for it. give the insight. They're going to give the insight to the Word of God, so that they. And here's the final outcome: this is what they want. So they understood the reading. It was important that they what understood it, right? It wasn't just part of the passage, part of the the, the uh, worship, where you just read the Bible and you're you're not really connected to it. It was important in the reading that there was understanding. So we can see there's a lot going on here besides just reading. And that's really so rich. One of my favorite passages in all the Word of God is that passage when they come back. That's a significant time in their life. And and they've been in captivity. They are now in the land. And a priest is reading the Word of God in the land. You can imagine how powerful that is for them. And so that's a significant time. Now I want you to turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. And, and it's just so rich. It really sets the context for the reading as you see the other examples we're going to have, because they will be exactly like this. So look at Luke 4 and verse 14, and, and the context here is Jesus is just returning from his temptation. He's still very much in favor with the people. Lots of people are following him. They haven't left him at this point. He hasn't said a lot of the hard things that are going to be said, and then people are going to begin to drop off. But He returns to Galilee, verse 14, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, verse 15, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And so he comes to Nazareth and he's been teaching in the synagogue and we can understand what that teaching is going to look like in just a minute. They're going to read this passage, they're going to comment on it. He comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. So they consider him a teacher, uh, and they took the scriptures at the spot where the reading would have been from on this particular Sabbath. And verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. I love this. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Word of God. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord, so Jesus is reading, is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Verse 19, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20, and he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that everybody sitting in there realized something has just happened that has never happened before. And I've told you before that some of my favorite passages in Scripture where I wished I could have been a fly on the wall, one of those was on the road to Emmaus, right? He's walking along, and the two disciples are there. And they don't recognize him, and they're talking about all the terrible things that happened. He goes, what things? And he goes, where have you been? You know, Jesus was put to death. And then he walks with them, and he tells them all the places in the Old Testament that foretold his coming. Now, I would have loved to hear that. And here's the other place. you are sitting in the synagogue. Jesus reads the passage from Isaiah and here's my favorite part in all of this, all of, the, all of the New Testament. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They're all quiet, and he read with power, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And then they, they're like, they're all looking, and then he says, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. So where he would have explained it, which is part of the reading, he does with himself. And that's just so wonderful, isn't it? You get the sense of that? Because that's not something every preacher has the privilege of saying. I mean, we we preach a lot of prophecy, right? Never have I said this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears. Okay, I don't get to say that. But Jesus gets to say that. And that was a shock to these people because what he was saying was, I'm the Messiah. And remember, he talked about Nazareth and said, a prophet's not without honor except in his own country. And they're thinking, who is this? I mean, this is this is Joseph's son, you know, aren't his brothers and sisters among us, you know, all of that? Now, I know that he said more than that, because if you look at verse 21, it says, they all bore him witness. Now, if you look, it says, he began to say to them. So, there were other things he said, but the crux of it was, it's me. So, in verse 22, it says, they all bore him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So, he must have said more than just, it's me. He gave an exposition of that particular portion, which would have been consistent with the reading. It's not just reading the Scriptures and sitting down. And so Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and and the sum of the exposition, though, was, it's me, it's me. Now, our next illustration, and you can turn to this one, it's the last one, Acts 13 and verse 14. So you can see the reading is going to have an exposition connected to it. That's exactly what we have in Nehemiah, and we have people spread out to make sure it's clear and broken down and all of that so that people can get the sense of it that's that's I love that of of my ministry when I teach it is so that you can have the sense of the passage that is my purpose what does it say that's the words we read what does it mean by what it says what kind of figure of speech is it is it is it just plain speech you know is it allegorical is it referring to something is it an illustration you know is it is it narrative what is it and then how does that apply to me is so important that's the sense of the passage so that you can understand how to connect so Now look there, Acts 13, verse 14. Now Paul and his companions are on their first missionary journey. And as is Paul's Sabbath, he starts evangelizing in the synagogue. That's always where he started. That's where he started in Corinth. Here he's, um, verse 14 says, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Verse 15. And after, here it is, the reading, after the reading, that's precisely what we're talking about. After the reading, of the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So again, the reading is the major part. It would include making sense of the passage and breaking it down so the people would come to understand it clearly. Then Paul begins to comment on the law and on the prophets. So now we fast forward 20 years and Paul is riding to the church at Corinth, and look what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.14. I won't have a slide, but you'll remember this. It wasn't that long ago. As he talks about those who are in the synagogue now, now that Jesus has come and then ascended back to heaven, their minds, he says, were hardened for the for until this very day at, mark this, the reading. So in the synagogue, at the, on this very up until this very day, Paul says, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed In Christ, but to this day, moreover, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Now let's make sense of that. Okay. The Jewish people can't understand, they can't get the sense of the reading so that it's clear to them, because why? Because they rejected Jesus, who himself is the key to all of the understanding. You see? Before Jesus came, they thought they understood the Messiah was going to come, they thought how it was going to happen, and they would read it, and they would get the sense of the reading, and they would exposit the scripture and all of that. But Paul says now, 20 years later, Jesus has come, he's, he's lived his life, he's died, he's paid a substitutionary death, and he's arisen and gone to heaven. Now, they still do the reading, but now they have no idea what they're talking about. They can't make sense of it because they want the Messiah passages to Jesus himself, And so, as we understand in the reference in context, as Paul says, give yourself to the reading, goes very well with with, uh, the teaching of Scripture. What does it say, and then what does it mean by what it says? Because that's exactly what's going on here. Obviously, during every service in the early church, there was a time for the reading, and the reading was a reading of Scripture with an exposition, because that's exactly what Paul's saying to him. Make sure you give yourself to the reading that's right there in Ephesus, which would imply that perhaps that wasn't what was going on, that somehow they got off and they were on to old wives tales and endless genealogies and all kinds of things, which he said, don't do. So this is not happening in Ephesus. He goes, you need to return to giving yourself to the reading. And it really embodies a reading and an explanation. I think you can see this with our three examples of the scripture. That was the reading. So, when it's used for Timothy and then all who teach the church with the verb give your attention to, mark this if you're going to give your attention to the reading, then that means you're going to have to be very careful in the text that you select, and you're going to be very, very careful in the correctness of your exposition, and you're going to be very, very cautious in all matters regarding your preparation. And you're going to give your whole attention to the matter of the reading and the explaining of the scriptures. That is the essence of it. That was the habit for so long, beginning way back at the time of Israel in the land. And Paul's always about this very important job. The primary job, as we've said, which is the essence of the pastor. And so you can see, people say, well, I teach biblically. Well, does it align with the reading? see? And I'm going to give you a few more examples, just kind of hammer this home. First Timothy 4, 6, pointing these things out to the brethren. You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith. It wasn't just some random thing. That's the scriptures and of the sound doctrine, which is the application of your understanding to people. You nourish yourself on that. You nourish the church on that. It's exactly the same idea. It's not like defined for you. You can't define this on your own. In fact, Paul condemns all of that. Second Corinthians two 17. We're not like many, even in the first century. What were they doing? Peddling the word of God. That's the idea of like a salesman trying to make it look good. Trying to polish it up and exclude the parts that people might not like and make it so you can sell it. We're not like that, Paul says. We don't do that. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. As if we're standing right before the Lord with a pure heart, we give you precisely what the Lord has given to us. Again, Second Corinthians 4, 2. Not walking in craftiness, or here it is, adulterating the Word of God. So you're making it say what you want it to say. You're changing it up so that it's better palatable. Whatever it is, you've got an agenda. You're going to kind of force your agenda on the Word of God. And so he says, we don't do that but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, we're going to give you truth. It'll resonate with a well-informed conscience that we're giving you precisely what the Lord says to give you. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So you can't, in other words, just wing it and do whatever you want to accomplish, whatever agenda you may have, because if you do that, according to 2 Corinthians 4.2, the gospel's going to be veiled to the very people who need to hear it. And I think you can see that. So, Paul says this is happening all the time, all over the place. It's obviously a problem in Ephesus, so Paul is addressing it. But in relation to the public reading of Scripture, which is what we have in NASB, but you understand simply the reading, not only did Christian churches adopt the custom of reading of the Old Testament from the synagogues, but they added to it readings from the apostles' letters in the Gospels. In fact, Colossians chapter 4 verse 15, when they do the reading, Paul says, greet the brethren who in Laodicea and also Nympha in the church that's in her house, mark this, when this letter is read among you during the reading, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. So what do you think then, if you understand the reading, happened when Paul sent Timothy this first letter? It made its way into the reading, right? Timothy reads it, and he brings it to the church. It becomes part of the reading, and then they make sense of it, which is precisely what Paul wanted them to do. And how about 1 Thessalonians 5.27? Precisely the same thing. I adjure you, Paul says, by the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brethren. In other words, just make it cyclical. Pass it on. After you've included it in the reading, pass it on to another church so they can include it in the reading. And this, I think, is where we get our understanding, how does this apply to me? This means that the first century, as we think about this passage in the reading, how does that apply to our understanding? The first century church put the apostles' writings on the same level as the Old Testament. In fact, the early church had two public readings, one from a portion of the Old Testament and then from the apostolic writing. Justin Martyr, he has an interesting um, quote. He's a Greek believer and Christian philosopher. He lived between 100 and 165 A.D., so he's a little bit separated from the early church, but listen to what he says is still going on. Uh, he wrote about the Christian faith, and, and and after the close of the first century, in his first apology, he says, quote, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the writings of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has finished, the overseer speaks, instructing and exhorting the church to imitate these good things, end quote. So, this is the established pattern, see? This is some, you know, oh, well, only some churches do this and other churches do other things. Other churches do do other things, but this is what's supposed to be done. And this is the very thing Paul is insisting, and he's commanding that Timothy and everyone who oversees the preaching and teaching ministry of the church to be continually given to by way of a command, which means that this probably wasn't going on. And we're about out of time, so we're going to wrap up. So I'm going to—I'm just going to give you some uh, some things that I think that are very important as we think about uh, this overall effect of this regular reading, the reading, if you will, of the Old and New Testaments worship. Really twofold, I think, and and both of them very important. First one is this: it emphasized the continuity between the Old and New Testament. So there's no break, right? The church took on and continued the reading of the Old Testament, which they understood in light of Christ now, and we have even more rich understanding now, don't we? And then they went right on into the the teachings of the apostles. And there was no break because they are in perfect harmony with each other. And so that's very important to recognize. that The church saw that early on. But secondly, and I think perhaps more importantly, it means that the preaching that followed was, mark this, secondary and derived from the reading of the Scripture. Do you see? The preaching was secondary to and derived from the reading. The reading happened first, and what had to happen next? The explaining of what you read. As clearly as possible, as we saw in Nehemiah, to get the sense of it, and you would have understanding, so you could go away with an informed conscience, with an understanding of the Word of God, with a better understanding of what your job is, whatever it is it's addressing, you see? So you just work your way through the scriptures as we do, just verse by verse, and whatever we come to, we come to. If it's embarrassing for you, it's embarrassing for you. If it's embarrassing for me, it's embarrassing for me. It's hard to teach, we do it. If it's easy to teach, we do it. If it's something we are doing, we're encouraged by it. If it's something we aren't doing, we're brought into conviction. You see how that works? We don't have to worry about kind of come up with some really cool title to a sermon to catch somebody's eye and then have all these cool things that we're going to do and videos and all the stuff and skits to make people entertain. That has not have anything to do with what went on in the reading. It has everything to do with you read the passage and then you marked what the passage said, what it mean by what it says. And then we're going to see next time the exhortation and the teaching. And, and, and I think we can understand that text because we understand what this text says, and so we can move right on through them, but but I think you, you can see if the reading includes what do the scriptures say, and then the sense of them, what do they mean by what they say, then the next two take in what? How does this apply to me? See, the exhortation is going to be, let's make an application of the scripture so you can go away a different person than you came. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. You'd think that was a grand suggestion, but, you know, if other things work, go ahead. But what we find here is it's not self-defined. What goes on in the pulpit has to be this. To whatever extent you understand the Word of God, you have to make that sense to the people. And that's what success in ministry on a Sunday by Sunday and small group by small group and children's church by children's church and personal Bible study with someone in your office or as a student looks like that's what it looks like you don't have to worry about coming up with something exciting what you have to worry about is make sure you understand clearly what the passage is and you're ready to make it make sense of it to the person you're talking to And that's a joy to know that because you have the same tutor that i have and the same text that i have you can read it and you can understand it and you can explain it what you don't get to do is make it up as you go and i think that we understand that so this is what jesus thinks is great this is success from god's perspective Regardless of the response, this is what you have to do. And um, it's just, as you can see, those things resonate with me. They're important, and I think they're important to you, too. You wouldn't be here. So let's uh, bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for the joy of being together and the the worship and music that we had earlier with Jacob. So grateful for the focus on your majesty and your power, uh, your supply, uh, the promises you've given us which you've never failed. And Lord, we thank you today that we could pray and submit ourselves to you, uh, lifting up holy hands, praying for those who are leaders and all in authority, that they might come to faith, that they might make then in their faith profession easier for the church to accomplish what she's to do and give out the great commission. And so, Father, I pray too, as we come to these parts, we understand what these say and, and in the ministries that we have here at Berean and those that extend out from here in many different directions and far away from us, I pray, Lord, that you'll uh, again, remind us of what's most important. It's easy to get off, especially when passages get tough and on to things that are more easily done. But Lord, I pray because you have elevated the importance of your word equal to your own name, I pray that we too will apply ourselves in a way that brings honor to you. That's success from your perspective, regardless of what's, how it's received, what people think about it, how they want to change it. This is what you think is great. This is when you say, well done. So Father, that's what we all aspire to. I pray that you'll bring us to that. Uh, then execution of these kinds of things so we do them in a way that's pleasing to you and for all these things we thank you lord as you t- you take us out today in our week and we may have some difficult times ahead perhaps some papers some tests some some uh, some reports uh, difficult things that you have to deal with father i pray that you would give grace to our congregation encouragement strength help them to know how to answer each person i pray that you would give them uh, diligence as they work success from their labor that they might adorn the gospel Thank you for that, Father, and our commitment to serve you. We love you. We thank you for our fellowship today, and and all God's people said, amen.